0: Hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. Today, I'm going to hit three stories. One, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, also known as the runaround of the Federal Constitution's Electoral College requirements. Number two, in studio, Dr. Merrill Matthews, also known as Buddy Matthews, joins me to explain the entitlements cliff. You need to know this stuff. And number three, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, excuse me, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, actually talked about the importance of an idea that's just like socialism related to New York City schools. Stay tuned.
1: Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry.
0: And hello and welcome again. I'm Debbie George Addison, this is America Can We Talk. Surely you heard that a lot of people in the American left were complaining about the fact that in the 2016 presidential elections, Hillary Clinton apparently won the popular vote, while of course Donald Trump won the presidency due to the electoral college system. Well, there is an effort right now on the American left to push through an interstate compact. And that compact essentially says, and you need to really follow what I'm saying here, the compact, the states that sign on to this are agreeing that even if your state, say Texas, or say Colorado, wherever you are, say you're Colorado, even if your state goes majority in the 2020 presidential elections for President Trump that the electors from your state, from Colorado, will be bound, will be obligated to vote for whichever candidate won the popular vote. So you, all the residents of all these states who are signing on to this compact, They, your state legislators and your governors who've signed this bill, they're agreeing that the big states get to silence the little states. They are agreeing that your votes for president don't matter. They're completely abandoning the Electoral College system. In fact, what they're really doing is an end run. Three things in the Constitution to tell you about. Number one, in Article two, section two and three, it describes the system of the Electoral College. It's in the Constitution. If they want to change this, they need to change. Change the constitution because what they're doing is instead of eliminating the electoral college Officially, they are making the electoral college process irrelevant in the selection of president. Therefore, they are, in essence, de facto destroying the electoral college, the entire system set up by the federal by the founders of our government for choosing our our federal officials. The reason that the electoral college is written into the Constitution is the idea that you want to have people in every state, people all over this country, have an equal vote, an equal ability to choose the president and you want to force the candidates to go to all the states to sell their ideas to states big and small to sell their state their ideas in big cities and rural areas and instead and not have what the what would be the outcome of what the Democrats get their way doing which is essentially to allow the big state majority to choose the president no more votes for flyover America. Number two, Article one Section 10 um, of the Constitution says that there you this interstate compact process is permissible. It allows interstate compacts, but it says in the Constitution that the Interstate Compact only becomes enforceable. If Congress agrees, there's been no congressional vote permitting this, but in the Interstate Compact, and I'm going to get to how far along the path they are already, but in the Interstate Compact, it recites, once we get to 270 electors, we win. They're treating it as though this is a done deal, it's a decision they made and we cannot undo it. Obviously, we all know Article 5 in the Constitution talks about what you really have to do to amend the Constitution. It provides processes in the Constitution. This, the, but so you know how far this has gotten? The uh, 12 states, which total, it happened to total 181 electors, have already signed on. Twelve states have signed on, two more states, New Mexico and Delaware, are just waiting for their governor's signature. They're already at 181 plus 5, 186, 189 electors they have now committed to this mission. And so I'm getting at this idea, what the left is really trying to say is that they're not going to honor the Constitution and they don't have any grasp of why the constitution would have set up this electoral college method it is a method to require not only that candidates go to every state but to keep intact the reality that every state has a different personality, different interests, different concerns, different priorities, and they all need to be represented in the selection of the president. The Electoral College, by the way, is made up of representatives of every state. Basically, the total number of electors you get from your state is based on having two senators, so all states get at least two, plus an equal number of electors as you have members in the U.S. Congress. And so big states already have a much bigger representation in the Electoral College. And the reason i bring this up today i'm going to wrap up this first five in just a moment but i bring this up to say this is another piece of evidence another thing for you to consider how determined the american left is in this country to grab back power to take away power from the people of america to get to choose their president they have We've run through these in the show before, but I'll give you just a summary again. Number one, they're talking about 16-year-olds voting. We don't even like our 16-year-olds driving. I mean, we're worried about that. This is voting for the presidency. That's one thing. The American left repeatedly, perpetually opposes any effort to require voter ID. A bill passed by the Democrat majority in the U.S. House, H.R. 1, Literally, I've, we've gone through it so many times on this show, I won't list them all again, but it contains provision after provision after provision that simply embed voter fraud. It is like they should have had, they should have been forced to label the law the voter fraud mandate from the federal government. Provisions followed in California will be imposed on all states. There is actually an active mission to abolish the Electoral College, which would be the honest way for the Democrats to go about this. We've had Elizabeth Warren sign on; She's all in favor of it, of the Democrat presidential candidates. Kamala Harris had a, a, hey, that sounds good. Beto O'Rourke, yeah, sounds pretty good. Uh, Pete, I can't even say his last name, the, the mayor from Cincinnati or wherever he's from, um, South Bend I think, Pete uh, Gucci, whatever his last name is, he's all for it too, and Julian Castro has also said yes we have to do that. But I really raise this not to, I, I think to get back to this interstate compact and this national popular vote, there's a really important reason the Constitution does not permit the popular vote to elect the president. We need to have that national conversation if there is an effort to change that provision in the Constitution. It needs to be a national conversation. It needs to be through the process of a formal effort to amend the Constitution and after that we can have that discussion and we'll have the vote and we'll follow the Constitution's process and chips fall where they may. But right now voters in states whose governors and legislatures have voted for this have essentially told their own voters we don't care what you think. We don't care who you would choose. We are going to ignore the voters of these little states in favor of the big states, New York, California, the big left-wing states, and that is not right. I'm Debbie Georges. This is America Can We Talk. Coming up next, as I mentioned before earlier today, we have a guest in studio, Dr. Merrill Matthews, Buddy Matthews, going to talk with us about uh, a new book. In fact, I'll show you the book. It is called On the Edge, America Faces the Entitlements Cliff. Honest to goodness, it is a great read. Stay tuned. Welcome back to America Can We Talk? As I mentioned earlier, we have in studio a guest. Dr. Merrill Matthews. Buddy Matthews, hello sir.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Glad you were here. Thanks for coming on. You've been on my show other times when I was over at a different station, but so glad you're here. Mm -hmm. And you have this new book out. I showed our listeners, but again, I'm just going to show you and tell them about this book. America is called On the Edge, America Faces the Entitlements Cliff. It relates to entitlement spending and the danger we are at at the um, where they are, uh, where our spending is going. Actually, let me take a moment. If you do not know Dr. Merrill Matthews, let me just tell you briefly about him. He is with the Institute for Policy Innovation, IPI, uh, which is it's a, a, a go-to resource for me getting ready for my show. Love their articles. Learn they have every day. You ought to go there and check it out. It's IPI.org, right? Mm-hmm. IPI.org, um, and he is a resident scholar at IPI. He's it's uh, he does fabulous research pieces, uh, testified in legislatures around the country. He's just really a, a profound and wonderful thought leader, and uh, he has taken the time to write out uh, what we where we are in this entitlement cliff. So,
1: and incidentally, the book is available at IPI ipi.org free for download, so it's available a digital version there. So if people go to ipi.org, they can find it and download it free.
0: That is actually I have downloaded it, but I was blessed because I got to borrow one copy, which I have to return to him today. But um, it's you know it's the kind of book if you're going to really talk about policy, you're going to want to mark up. Let me just start with this. So there is talk almost every election cycle, probably for. 40 YEARS, 50 YEARS. OH, WE'RE REALLY IN TROUBLE NOW. THE ENTITLEMENTS ARE. AND and, YOU KNOW, I THINK WHAT HAPPENS, PEOPLE HEAR THAT SO OFTEN THAT ENTITLEMENT SPENDING IS OUT OF CONTROL. Mm -hmm. AND YET SOMEHOW AMERICA plods ON, THE SUN COMES UP, YOU KNOW. AND SO THEY DON'T REALLY THINK THAT IT'S A BIG PROBLEM. SO TELL US HOW CLOSE TO THE CLIFF ARE WE REALLY?
1: WELL, WE'RE AWFULLY CLOSE TO THE CLIFF. Um, OCCASIONALLY WASHINGTON WILL COME IN AND TRY TO REFORM ENTITLEMENTS. THEY ALMOST ALWAYS ONLY PUT A BAND-AID ON IT Uh, And this is is the pattern of entitlements, that politicians come up, and this is true of just about every country, politicians come up and say, we perceive a need out there, so we need a program to help this group, that group, or whatever. They draft legislation, oftentimes initially it looks like it might actually be actuarially sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time it isn't, but they'll <laughs> at least make the case that it is. They pass the legislation, if it was actuarially sound, then they'll decide that they need to add more people to it, add more benefits to it, do something to essentially destroy the fiscal responsibility in the program. But most cases it just it was never actuarially sound to begin with, and at some point in the near future it starts declining and we see this with social security we see it with medicare uh, we see it with a range of things and let me just add one thing when i mention social security in terms of entitlement i usually get a lot of pushback from people who say social security is not an entitlement i paid for it well, kind of. You have made your, your FICA payroll taxes for forty or fifty years if you're close to retirement, but you've done that with Medicare. Incidentally, I very seldom hear somebody say Medicare is not an entitlement because I paid for it. But it's the same. It's in the same class as Social Security. Sure. So the government the, that money went to the federal government, but the government took that money immediately and paid current retirees. There is no money in the account. There is a it's supposed to be a point seven trillion dollar trust fund. But the federal government has borrowed all that money and spent it and put IOUs in there. So it, and in addition, the uh, Supreme Court has ruled that you have no private property right to your Social Security check. The Congress can step in and Congress can say we're going to change that program, we're going to eliminate it, it can do whatever it wants. You have no private property right to the money you have spent 20, 30 or 40 years putting into Social Security. Uh, So as a result, it it is an entitlement, you just aren't entitled to it.
0: (laughs) Okay, well that's actually bad news. I'm even a lawyer by background. I did not know the Supreme Court had ruled that that you have no private right, no entitlement to your own Social Security fund. Right. Or your, whatever you donated. Yeah, which, which is which, why
1: if, if your listeners get the um, uh, get this annual statement from Social Security where the trustees, the Social Security trustees say if nothing changes come around two, 2034, 2035 we'll only be able to pay 75 cents on the dollar Uh, for what you should be earning. Or what you should be receiving there. There's no if. If we come to that position and the and Social Security only pays you 75 cents on the dollar, you have no right to go to Congress or to go to the courts and say you have to pay me the whole amount because you have no private property right there. And that, the Social Security trustees tell us right now, you are you only are going to get about 75 cents on the dollar. Come about what 14 years from now, 15 years from now. Um, so they're looking at trying to do some kind of tweak, but I doubt they're going to act fundamentally change the program, I suspect. And you see this from Democrats. They say, let's raise taxes on it. Let's cut benefits on some people. They mostly want to raise taxes as a way of trying to uh, fix the problem, but it only exacerbates the problem.
0: You had, and again, folks, I really urge you to actually get this book. And also, if you go to IPI.org, you can find an article that in that is on this, it's kind of a summary of the book that was posted on the IPI website and on my website AmericaCanWeTalk.org if you go to the home page along the top where it says shows go down every day I post the links to the articles we talk about and this article I'm referring to from IPI summarizing this book and its points is on the website today And you can go and click on it and read it yourself it's, the article is called On the Edge America Faces the Entitlements Cliff It's a scary title even. Okay. It is. You also had among the things you you talked about in the book was, you know, which which ones are we talking about. I just wanna You know, we talked about Medicare a moment ago, but just understanding, leaving Social Security and Medicare out of it entirely, just in 2015, the year 2015, the government spent $1.1 trillion on means-tested welfare programs, meaning programs you're entitled to because you have to show you have need in some way. What you have available isn't enough. And that number, just in 2015, $1.1 trillion, larger than the GDP of all but 15 countries. And again, that doesn't even include Social Security and Medicare. I think people have no idea.
1: I I think people have no idea. We just put on the uh, website, on our Facebook page at IPI, a picture of a dollar to show you sort of how much entitlement spending takes of that. You've got nearly 29% that goes to Social Security. You've got, uh, and this is federal revenue, you've got uh, about 18, 19% that goes to Medicare, another 12% that goes to uh, uh, Medicaid, CHIP, other healthcare mm-hmm. programs uh, about 11% that goes to other means tested programs and you've got interest on the federal debt that we have to pay that's about 8 or 9%. You put all that together and about 76 77% of federal revenue the money it takes in goes to entitlement spending. That means every, you know we're in five or six years ago when the economy was in worse shape and we were spending more and we had less revenue nearly every dollar THE FEDERAL GOVERNMENT TOOK in, IN REVENUE WAS GOING TO ENTITLEMENT SPENDING, NEARLY every, or THE INTEREST ON THE DEBT, NEARLY EVERY
0: DOLLAR. Oh GOSH. <sniffs> NEARLY EVERY DOLLAR. I, I WISH THIS COULD BE FORCE-FED, THIS INFORMATION FORCE-FED, STARTING AT ABOUT SIXTH GRADE to students AND STUDENTS AND ALL THROUGH THE COLLEGES BECAUSE I, I WAS telling you off air but just you know you do hear many people aren't that well informed they think we probably spend too much in the military mm-hmm. that we don't spend enough taking care of people and you made a point in uh, your article and the book about the idea that when you set up entitlement programs are kind of the common path that the government follows it has a good thought to it. what you started out saying a moment ago, but inevitably someone doesn't think it's enough, it needs tweaking, People, be, and then the other aspect I want to turn to now is people become reliant on it. So they- Absolutely right. And so they aren't thinking about how am I going to move forward in my life? They're thinking about who should I vote for who will continue or increase this benefit?
1: Uh, if I remember right, about 60% of seniors, Social Security is their primary source of income. Uh. Retirees, so that's it's it's a huge amount uh, who just fi- fundamentally depend on. And here's what's so what's so sad about that. If you were taking that same money that you were putting in Social Security and put it into a retirement account, just a just a broad-based IRA mm-hmm. that was investing in the S&P 500 or Nasdaq or, or just the Dow in general, uh, and and did that for 40, 50 years, you would have so many millionaires in the country country. It would be, it would be huge. I mean, there was a book that came out several years ago. I think it's Every American a Millionaire or something. Just because of the act, fact of compound interest, the economy growing and so forth, you would have so many rich people in the country and it would be money that they actually owned, not the federal government saying we'll give you this money. It is you the, the wealth issue. Democrats tend to focus on how much money you earn. The real issue is how much you have in assets. If you have a lot of money in assets, you don't worry about these other things. And that's what a private Social Security account would allow you to do. You can even do it with Medicare. You know, years ago, they said, you can't do this with Medicare because Medicare is a defined benefit plan. You don't know how much health care you're using. Well, back in 1997, Congress passed what was called Medicare Plus Choice. Mm -hmm. They changed it to Medicare Advantage in 2003. And And so right now, about a third of retirees on Medicare. The go- they choose Medicare Advantage. The government just writes their private sector health plan a check once a year, and that private sector health plan plan provides all their needs. Well, look, if, if the government's just going to write a private insurance company a, a check once a year, I can do that. Yeah. Let me put my money
0: aside, and I'll write them the check. I'm going to get to because one thing I loved about your book it did have a, this a lot of data, and it does make people realize this isn't just a hypothetical concern, or it is a true concern about the entitlement cliff, so on. And I want to to go to you propose and I like your term sustainable solutions. Mm-hmm. You went through all the programs and described what's a sustainable solution. I do want to get that but two things first. One is what about the argument people saying well if you let people just, just instead of putting the money into Social Security or into Medicare, if you let them do these privatized accounts, what do you do about the people who are irresponsible and don't do it? And so they end up with at the end of their, at the point in their life when they they need funds that they would otherwise have, they don't have anything. I mean, aren't they still end up on welfare? That's the first one. What do you do with people who don't behave responsibly?
1: Easy solution. Um, There are three counties in Texas that opted out of Social Security back in 1981 and 82. They created a program uh, where, these are three counties, these are county employees, many of them are union members. Uh, the money that they would have sent to Social Security goes to a private f- uh, financial institution which takes the money and bids it out to f- other mm-hmm. financial institutions for a guaranteed interest rate. So this has been in effect for, what, 30 years now, more than 30, maybe 35 years? They have never lost a dime. So Are they required to
0: participate in it?
1: They're required to participate. Okay, okay. It's, it's just like Social Security. So instead of the money going to the federal government, it goes to this financial planner that... Uh, uh, lends the money out. In in times where you have high interest rates and so forth, they'll make pretty good. In times when the stock market's tanking, they still make roughly about three and a half, three point seven five percent 3.75%. Mm-hmm. Never lost a dime in this, and it's been going on for years. People retire with roughly twice what they would have if they had been in Social Security. Uh, and like I said, this is three counties that's been doing this
0: for a number of years. So the people are required to put their money in. That mm-hmm. it isn't voluntary. And then, secondly, do they have access to their money? What if they said, I mean, is, there, is there anything they could with? Because I'm, I just. I think the argument against things like this, people think, well they would be irresponsible people, the reason we have these programs is to just just outsmart the irresponsible and make it impossible. So can these people in these counties get to that money before retirement? Or no. get they can't or, or before the need just Medicare. A, it's
1: like Social Security like that. They get oh, it if they oh if they God. retire or if they leave that system and go someplace else, then they'll have access to it. That but to your point, that's why Al Gore used to call this plan something like this a risky scheme. And we published right. a paper saying no risk. Scheme called no risky scheme because the money is in there. It's guaranteed and uh, it it has, like I said, has never lost a dime. And the interesting thing about this, it is, I call this, that, that Galveston model, these three Texas counties, um, I call it a, uh, a banking model as opposed to an IRA model. So think of a bank where you put money in, they pay you interest rates, a little bitty interest rate, but the, mo- the bank takes the money out and invests it, but you're guaranteed to have that money and it grows over time, just not very much. This grows over time, but it grows by a lot.
0: I love that. I am going to get your sustainable solutions, but one other point I really love that you made, and I probably should have brought up earlier, was every time the government increases spending on all these kinds of programs, they have to increase taxes to fund the programs, mm-hmm. and they're they're they are creating dependency, and they are creating a sense of entitlement. But they're also taking money out of the economy for which which taxpaying and hardworking people may otherwise have used to create new businesses, to hire, to expand a business, to hire a second person. So there's kind of a double whammy effect because you're not the money is not available. Right. In, I, had, I can't believe I never thought of that, but that is such a good point. You just you, the growth of the entitlement programs not only creates dependency or adds the dependency, it reduces the ability of those who are dependent to find jobs because there are fewer jobs around.
1: That's right. In in 2017 we spent nearly a trillion dollars on Social Security. If that, instead of the federal government just redistributing that money, if that money had been put into capital markets, you would have a lot more capital out there moving the economy up and you'd have a lot more people interested in ensuring that the economy grows well and they don't want liberal policies that end up stifling the economy.
0: Yes, it's amazing. I-, I think that you should, maybe I'll do this, I should buy uh, whatever it's going to be for him. 535 copies of this, <laughs> mail it to every member of Congress and the Senate and say, you better read this. I mean, seriously, because it's full of solutions, which I want to turn to now. You talked about the expression in your book, Sustainable Solutions, and mm-hmm. you talked, for example, on uh, the entitlement, Social Security, uh, the pension crisis, welfare, health Let's just start with, um, I have my page numbers. I didn't put any marks in this book, but I have the page numbers ready, uh, starting with the seniors and Social Security, the majority of federal entitlement spending, majority of federal entitlement spending secure is social security and medicare in 2017 social security 925 billion with a b medicare 702 billion total 1.63 trillion what are the solutions for seniors in the uh, medicare and social so- are you able to summarize those
1: yeah you just have to let people put that money into their own account when they're working and when they retire they have access to that money to buy their health care and to pay for their retirement uh, that will solve most all of that problem. You do have a transition problem of people who are in the system now. We can work through that, but you, what you want to do is allow people to put their own money in their own account during their working life. You have some oversight and protections on there, but it's their money.
0: So the transition phase is always the one that people get anxious about. When everyone people they use the term privatizing right. Social Security and Medicare, and the concern about who's in, in the middle of the um, assembly line but you have some way of addressing that. Is there a certain age that right. you can you, still you, open the account? If nothing
1: or? else, you just let people who are just entering the workforce move into the new system and let these others phase out. The government have to borrow some money, it could pay it back through that. You don't necessarily let people put the whole fifteen point three percent Social Security and Medicare into it. You could take a little bit of that to help uh, offset that. They'd still retire with a whole lot more money. So there's a way to pay for the transition.
0: Yeah, and on that transition thing, it seems like if you pick some age or at least make it available to people at some age, still working, still earning income. I want to switch right now over to this private thing. That, uh, that?
1: Phil Graham, as senator, when he was trying to do this with Medicare in the late 90s when the government had a budget surplus, he said, we need to do it now. He said, if nothing else, if I could get just get people, people just coming in the workforce, we'd have it privatized in 40 years.
0: Oh, my gosh. It's just amazing. You know, it's kind of a funny thing because I think there has been so much uh, fear mongering uh, by many people in politics that the idea of privatizing this, the left has conveyed the impression it's dangerous. It's actually the, the safest thing we could do. It's, it's the safest thing we could do. Okay, on welfare. So we have the welfare safety net, and you had a long description of all the forms. In fact, you you had several pages. There's about
1: 80 welfare programs out there.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say there are pages. There's three or four pages that list the programs mm-hmm. and the amounts. I thought about trying to get them up on a screen, but again, you should read the book. But all these programs, they overlap. They they are redundant. And your solution for the, the welfare written. thing. Sorry? A lot of them are fraud ridden. Oh, yeah, fraud ridden to beat the band. So, what is it? for? The, what's the welfare safety net fix? So,
1: just do what Milton Friedman had suggested. It's called a negative income tax. We actually have a program like that called the Earned Income Tax Credit. Uh, Friedman said look, if, if you want to have a safety net, give people a certain amount of money uh, and let them use that however they need to as low-income people. But his his biggest caution was don't have a system in which you have a negative income tax and a bunch of welfare programs. Well, that's exactly what we have, of course, because we have the earned income yeah. tax credit and 80-some-odd programs. So I would eliminate the programs, bump up the money a little bit, including their health care money for Medicaid, and uh, give people a certain amount of money. They in, the money for their health care would go directly to the insurance company, like Medicare Advantage, uh, and then uh, they have the money and they have that to work with. But because your people would be saving so much through Social Security, I wouldn't say you've got to be out of work for, say, a year because you could draw down on some of that money before you could even uh, access welfare.
0: Okay, so again, the, back to the uh, whatever devil's advocate or the rhetorical. But what do you do about people? Who, you're saying you hand them money, so they you hand them at least so the money from the government would go to pay for their health care, not directly to them, but go to some health care mm-hmm. setup. But what do you do for people like housing and food and all the way that we are otherwise? You just
1: give them a cash
0: grant. And, and several
1: economists, Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, yeah. have made these points for years. They said, if we just took the money we're spending on welfare, you could hand everyone, it usually figures around $20,000 a year per person, just by taking all the money we're doing spending on, on welfare. I'd lower that down some, and I'd cut out all the bureaucracy and paperwork, but you just give them a certain amount of money and let it go.
0: So it'd be means tested.
1: Means tested.
0: Somebody says I they're it's eligible. Also on a s- sliding scale,
1: lower income people would get a little more.
0: And you'd have people obviously you no know, number of children in your family count, so you'd get some
1: We we stop it at I think two children, so we don't want to pay you more for having more children. do want to
0: encourage irresponsible. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you end up giving them money. And so again I always get around to what if you have so? Okay, the person is mean tested. They went through the system. They are they are deserving of twenty thousand dollars, and they get halfway through the year and they spend all their money on food and housing and they they're broke.
1: There's private sector charities out there.
0: They turn to charity. Okay, which is actually one of the main arguments many, and including myself, have made many times. We almost discourage charity in yes. our country.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And and uh,
1: our point is. Every major economy has got a safety net out there. So we're going to have to have, we're going to have a safety net. Uh, but you you want one that encourages people to get off the system and get back to work as soon as possible.
0: And to learn to budget, if you know if you're receiving $20,000 one lump sum, it's a lump sum. It would be or it would be monthly or what? We we
1: suggest it could go either way. But the other thing is, it has to be tied to looking for a job. You're yes. going to have to do something for it. We call it workfare. There is a system. Uh, Oregon did this back in the 90s. Uh, they had a pilot program, and if you went into the uh, to the uh, welfare office and said, "I need a job," they said, "We're going to find you a job. You're going to work." That's not that's not. A question: You're going to work. We're either going to take your welfare and give it to your employer to hire you to have a job for mm-hmm. a while, or you're going to do some uh, some make work. You're going to have to go to work. And what they said was when when people said, well, i got to find a job, I'll go find my own job. And a third of the people yes. just walked out.
0: Yep, New never York mind.
1: New York Times did a story on this. It, <laughs> and he said it, it allowed the social workers to actually get to what they called the drawer cases. That were the people that came in and said, oh, my goodness, here's a person She's she's got, uh, you know, spouse abuse, drug issues, and other things. I'm going to put it in my drawer, and I'll get to them when I never when I get time, and they never got to them. It allowed them to finally get to these tougher cases mm-hmm. and actually work with those people to get them back on the uh, on the uh, in a
0: job. Yeah, you know the uh, as I say, the best uh, form of welfare is a job, or that's not quite the right expression, but the, you know the best cure to welfare is just a job. Absolutely. So you would, of course, in a system. Not have people uh, subject to it if they were either truly mentally or physically disabled. Right. I mean,
1: somehow you, some people are, not, are going to are not eligible to be able to go to work, and you make provisions for them. But most people, large majority of people, are able to enter the workforce and uh, have some kind of job. Even certain disabled people mm-hmm. were able. If I couldn't do what I used to do, I might be able to do something yeah. else. yeah,
0: yeah. I JUST LOVE THAT IDEA, AND I LOVE i, I love IT ACTUALLY it HAS A SENSE OF KIND OF BELIEVING IN PEOPLE, BELIEVING IN THE IDEA THAT YOU ACTUALLY, IF YOU'RE GIVEN THE INSPIRATION, IF YOU'RE TOLD WE WILL HELP YOU, BUT YOU'VE GOT TO GET MOVING AND FIND A JOB, I DO THINK MOST PEOPLE WOULD ULTIMATELY LOVE THAT FEELING OF SELF-RELIANCE. WORK IS REDEEMING. IT IS HELPFUL
1: FOR PEOPLE TO BE ABLE TO GO TO WORK. I DON'T UNDERSTAND WHY LIBERALS OPPOSE THIS, BECAUSE BEING ABLE TO PROVIDE FOR PEOPLE AND SAY I WENT TO WORK AND, and EARNED A CHECK FOR IT IS uh. GOOD FOR YOUR OWN. Uh, uh, mental health and right. for
0: your family. Oh, it really is. So um, I love that you took the time to do this book because it really is filled with detail, substance, specifics, and honestly, I'm not an economist by background. and I could follow it. I could actually follow what you were saying. That's well, what like we tried to do. Some economists, where I have to read every sentence three times. What did he just say?
1: We tried to make this simple enough that even the media could understand it.
0: <laughs> Even a member of Congress could understand it.
1: I'm not sure we got that far.
0: (laughs) Well, I love what you did, and I love the idea of tackling the problem because it kind of go back to where we started, I think there's so much conversation in this country about... The entitlement cliff, as you describe it, is just kind of unsolvable. We just, all we can ever do is band-aid here, raise a tax there, maybe raise an entitlement age, you know, a year or two. But we don't really get at a a, a fundamental shift in how we think about the way we help people in our country. And
1: that's a key point. Politicians think of this as something that's going to hurt them. If you do it right, it will help them, not only the people, but it'll help the politicians because people will have money as They'll have a job, and they will uh, they will appreciate being able to get back to work and put their own money aside.
0: And they'll pay taxes.
1: And they'll pay taxes. And they'll pay taxes.
0: Well, Buddy Matthews, thank you for coming in. I love this book. I love what you're doing. I love it. Just great. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, folks, we are going to take a very quick break, three seconds or less, and when we come back, I have one more story to tell you about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and what she said about a school in New York City that dared to be a meritocracy, dared to say they actually reward students who achieve. That's not okay. She bring, She's bringing her socialist economic mindset to public school admission. Stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome back to America Can We Talk, I'm Debbie george Okay, so there was a, um, you may have read about this in instance in New York City last year. Uh, New York City Mayor de Blasio was, uh, complaining isn't the right word, he was talking about admission to uh, these very high-end competitive public schools in New York City. Public high schools, students have to take a test to be admitted, the school simply takes the top number of students they can, not most students they can, based on test scores. They don't know who is blind admission. They don't know who the students are. But they take the top students and in. And uh, Mary de Blasio was talking last year about the fact that in this public school, uh, and it's the case again this year, this particular school, which was a subject of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's comments, uh, is called Stuyvesant High School. But her statistic was, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, our leading socialist in America, uh, her, her stat was that in that school at Stuyvesant, 74% of the students are Asian American, but only 15% of the students um, in New York City are Asian American. So she's saying there's only 15% of the population, yet there's 74% of the students admitted to Stuyvesant. Her argument, and actually she's, she's up, it's kind of funny to think about this, but Mayor de Blasio is using Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's sparkle her fame to back him on his mission to try to force the school to change their curriculum or change their criteria for admitting students and in some way bring more racial balance and so this is his mission he was rejected um, and so last year he did not make any progress on this and so now we have um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez join the conversation I'm going to put a comma there and remind you all about a case we talked about I don't know, last year, earlier this year, involving Harvard. Harvard was actually sued by Asian students who did not were not admitted to Harvard, and they although they had better test scores, better grades, you know, better qualifications than other students who were admitted. And their argument, these Asian students' argument at Harvard was that Harvard was deliberately undermining the application of Asian students by giving them poor grades on things that are subjective, like are they socially, do they think they'll socially fit in, are they socially awkward, whatever their dumb criteria was. The point was Harvard was hiding the fact they did not want to reward actual performance, actual test scores and grades and whatever other activities these kids had, they were clearly, many Asian students, clearly superior applicants based on the criteria Harvard said they apply. And Harvard was really trying to say, you know, we don't, we can't admit that we really are, we just have too many Asian students here. So they, they ding them on just irrationally and unfairly and honestly dishonestly by saying well they didn't get in because uh, you know whatever they're, they, they, they seem socially awkward, they didn't have social skills, whatever their thing was. Well it's the same battle going on at Harvard as is going on in New York City and that is this. Should admission to schools be a meritocracy or should admission to schools involve assessment of inherent characteristics like like your race, your ethnicity, your national origin? Harvard could not bring themselves to just be honest and say, yes, we're on a mission to admit more African-American students, which was their primary mission. It appeared from the statistics you could read in the lawsuit, it appeared the mission was to admit more African-American students on the argument that they had backgrounds that weren't as supportive, they didn't have the quality public schools they were coming from in order to get the grades they needed or in order to get the test scores they needed and so they were just trying to do essentially a form of affirmative action but hiding it. So back to New York City. I was thinking when I was reading this article by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez how much her argument in New York City is about admission to schools is just like her argument about economics. Socialists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez want to deny, ignore, avoid the simple truth of life that you only get success through hard work and that an economy A society must reward hard work. If you're a redistributionist, as she is, if you think that your mission as a member of the US Congress is to work as hard as you can to redistribute wealth, what you're doing is telling people who work hard, who achieve, who earn, who succeed, that we don't really value what you do. We don't. We're gonna. We see no connection between hard work and success. We can't. We, we don't even see it. And so we're going to. Fu- we're going imp- to raise your taxes. We're going to redistribute because we see equal merit in people who don't work at all, and people who work really hard to achieve. It's the socialist mindset. Or I was trying to find that Maggie Thatcher statement. It's something along the lines of, if the government separates effort from reward, that they, they can no longer expect effort. It's just the denial of that fundamental fact of life. Well, back to the situation in New York City. The students uh, that would be turned down at Stuyvesant under this proposal that Mary de Blasio has and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is cheering on, the students who actually performed well, let's just start with the Asian Americans because that's who she's targeting. She's complaining there's too many Asian Americans in Stuyvesant High School. Those students will not be driven to work as hard to achieve the test scores, if if they know it, it can't help, they're gonna still end up in their zip code mandated public school, which isn't very good. You want to inspire students to work hard, to study hard, to get good grades. So the first point is, it's the same thing, whether in economics or in school admission, our systems should inspire and reward hard work. If you take that away, you you're going to end up with people not willing to work hard but number two is and a deeper point about all of this happening in New York City is obviously one of the points people make criticizing this uh, effort of de Blasio and now Ocasio-Cortez is the idea that there are factors that do weigh in to why they have such an inordinately high percentage of Asian American students who perform well one factor is, and this is just a, uh, you know, a jokes by Asian Americans, they'll say it all the time their mothers crack the whip, their dads crack the whip. They, there is a culture within many Asian American communities not just in America, around the world of being very strict with their kids, insisting on doing homework, insisting on achieving, insisting on performance. It is why the premier institutions in our country have a very heavy concentration of Asian students because it's a cultural thing. It doesn't mean they're born smarter, it doesn't mean they're better people or worse people. It's a cultural habit in Asian communities. Number two is, in two-parent families in this country Students are far more likely to achieve than they are students from one-parent families. In fact, there was a new study again out, and I think I had on the show last week, or I can put it up again, but AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, again did a study, backing up a study by the Brookings Institute and many, many others, that children thrive better in two-parent homes. Children thrive better with two parents on the scene, talking to the kids, encouraging them, role-modeling them, inspiring them, and so I'll give you a statistic in New York City related to two-parent versus one-parent homes. I'm sorry, this is nationwide. This is not just New York City. What percent of Asian American kids in America grow up in single-parent homes? 16%. 16%. What parent what percentage of African American kids in America grow up in single parent homes? 66%. There's a massive difference created by the family background. And I know these are hard conversations to have. It's much easier to salute to the liberal solution, to salute to say, okay, let's just enforce, you know, uh, affirmative action, let's just enforce that students are gonna get into Simonston's school consistent with their percentage representation in New York City, um, in, in New York City's population. That is an easy solution, but it's not fair. To the Asian students who succeed, it's not fair to their parents who push them to succeed, and ultimately it's avoiding the deeper, harder, tender issues. It really is a question in America what policies we have in place, what expectations we have, what culture we have created, that we have so many kids in America growing up in single parent homes who are statistically overwhelmingly more likely to get poor grades, single-parent homes, get poor grades, drop out of high school, join a gang, get into drugs, fail to go to college, not have a job, end up committing a crime, going to jail. The statistics for kids in single-parent homes overwhelmingly show that it is a better thing to have two-parent homes. This gets way beyond the issue of solving the Stuyvesant High School solution, a problem. I don't know what the solution is, but I don't think the solution is to ignore the reality that policies in this country have ended up causing kids to not have a chance to succeed. It is not the fault of the kids in those homes. It's not the fault of the kids in single parent homes. But it is a cultural responsibility of all of us to think more deeply about what policies we have in place that encourage single parenthood and what policies we have in place that reward intact family units. I'm Debbie george This is America Can We Talk? I'm on every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. I hope you tune in every week. Go to the website, americacanwetalk.org. Check out the links to everything I've talked about today. Love sharing my research. I love when you email me at AmericaCanWeTalk@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The only thing, do not email me and tell me I talk too fast. Beside that, you can email me only about any topic, so I love it. And if you're on Facebook, please like our page, share these posts, comment on the page. If you're on YouTube, subscribe, love talking about preserving America, the most precious experiment in human liberty on the earth. Talk to you Monday.
1: America, can we talk truth about America?